Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you all. Uh, this morning we are continuing on in our series, Stories of Old, A Journey Through the Old Testament, where uh, throughout this fall season uh, we will be hitting some of the major mile markers, some of the major uh, moments and uh, uh, arcs within this, this broader story uh, that we see happening throughout the Old Testament. So as we uh, get ready to jump into that this morning, uh, would you join me for a word of prayer? Loving God, we are uh, grateful for this chance to be together today. Uh, God, thank you for uh, this gift of technology that uh, connects those of us here in person with those of us joining on Zoom. And God, we thank you even more for uh, the, the divine, mysterious gift that is your spirit um, that unites us, that connects us, that is, is shaping us and forming us uh, uh, throughout this time. And so God, as we now turn to uh, open up the scriptures and to wrestle with them, uh, we pause and we acknowledge that uh, your spirit is here among us. And we open ourselves up to your spirit and ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So throughout the course of a typical month, uh, I meet with several different groups of pastors. And these groups meet uh, all sorts of different needs in my life. So on the one hand, they, uh, they meet like a social need in my life. Uh, these are people that I can get coffee with and uh, tell stories and uh, laugh and tell jokes normally at one another's expense because most of us are solo church pastors, which means like we sit in an office by ourselves often. And so you just need that... Uh, you can't really make jokes about yourself too often without people like starting to worry in some ways. So it, it meets that sort of need in my life. But it also meets like an, a need for encouragement in my life because these are people who um, have similar sort of values and perspectives and similar sort of life experiences. And it's a time for us to like share what's going on in our life and for um, others to, to share their wisdom and for us to glean the wisdom from others. But it also meets like an accountability sort of need in my life because these are people that I've opened myself up to and uh, give them space to like check me, like check me on my motives, my desires, the things that I'm pursuing uh, with my life, my time, my energy, and all of that. So uh, over the last like five years, uh, there's been different seasons where like these groups have been so, so incredibly meaningful in my life. Well, in one of these groups, uh, we were recently reading a book called Flourishing in Ministry, which sounds like a book that you would read in one of these groups, right? And uh, in one of our most recent readings in that book, uh, the author was talking about um, this individual who is an expert in job analysis. So their job is to uh, step into uh, a workplace and interact with someone's job, their career, their vocation, peel back the layers in some way, get their hands on the, the nitty-gritty details of, of their work. And this expert in job analysis turned their attention to the work of pastoral ministry. And they uh, said that as they began to get their hands on this, uh, what they discovered was that they had never encountered a job that was quite as complex and varied as pastoral ministry. And I thought, okay, I feel very seen and encouraged in this because there are days where I will go from changing a light bulb to planning a funeral, right? Like <laughs> far ends of the spectrum, right? And so like I'm feeling very seen. And I wish the author would have stopped there because the author continues to talk about this like wrestling with uh, this, this job of pastoral ministry and said, that as um, they wrestled with it, they said that to do this job well, to complete all of the tasks that are required of a pastor, to, to do this job in an efficient, meaningful way, it would require something like 64 different personal competencies. <laughs> 
Most of us are doing good if we have one personal competency, right? <laughs> and they're saying, like, you need, like, the capabilities of, like, 64 different people to do this job well. And then they wrapped up their conclusion by saying, it is almost inconceivable to imagine that a single person could be uniformly high on 64 distinct knowledge, skills, abilities, and personal characteristics. So I went from like feeling super seen, super well-known, and super encouraged to like having this bar set super high, and then somebody coming and just slashing my knees out from under me and saying, oh, by the way, you're going to fail at this, right? I took a picture of this uh, page, and I sent it to a pastor buddy of mine, and I said, oh, is this why I feel so incompetent most of the time? (laughs) Kidding. Kind of. (laughs) The reason why I say all of this You may not be a pastor, but maybe you're a parent. I've been a parent for 19 months, and I've come to the conclusion that I need a whole different set of personal competencies each and every day to be like a safe and loving and effective and empathetic and encouraging sort of parent, right? And it can quickly feel like, oh, I've been given this task to shape a human being. Like that feels really overwhelming, and I don't know that I'm qualified for this task, right? But maybe you're not a pastor, maybe you're not a parent, but maybe you are a teacher, And talking to my teacher friends, like, my goodness, my heart goes out to you. There is so much that's being asked of all of you. Like, not only do you have this task of teaching, right, like conveying information and concepts and ideas and um, uh, facts about the world, but you also are, like, uh, tasked with, like, teaching interpersonal skills and, like, shaping the next generation and then things like classroom management and grading and discipline and all of the duties that you didn't want to sign up for, but you have to because that's part of the responsibilities, right? And, like, as I hear my teacher friends talking, I'm exhausted for them, right? <laughs> There's so much being asked of them. And I can't help but wonder if, like, they, they, they have these feelings like they're not able to live up to all of these things. Now, maybe you're not a pastor, maybe you're not a parent, maybe you're not a teacher, but maybe you're just a human being who's trying to make sense of this experience that we call the year 2020 and 2021, where it seems like the the landscape of what it means to be a contributing member of society seems to be shifting just about every five minutes, and as soon as we get our hands wrapped, our minds wrapped around it, like something significant changes, right? (laughs) See, I think for most of us, we have this sort of like ache within us, this, this sense, this feeling that like in some way... Uh, we are not capable of meeting the demands, the challenges, the tasks, the the things that are being asked of us. I think for most of us, if we're honest, we we would all say that we in some way have some sort of feelings of inadequacy, some sort of feeling of incompetency, some sort of feeling, some sort of sense that I am not enough. Uh, Now, I think that this ache, this sensing that we're feeling is not just rooted in me, not just rooted in you, but rooted in all of us. Like, I think if you ask the person on your left or right if they have these feelings, if they said no, I think in some ways they might be lying to you, right? I think that this ache, this sensing, this, this feeling within us is something like a, a fairly universal human experience, something that all of us feel from time to time. And I, I, I come to this conclusion because I've talked to so many people who like, have expressed this feeling in themselves. But I also have come to this conclusion because we see this idea being witnessed to time and time again all throughout the scriptures, right? God coming to humanity and humanity expressing this feeling like, I am not enough. I am not capable. I am inadequate. I am incompetent to do this thing. Now, I think one of the stories that we see this, uh, that's maybe the most well-known story that we see this, uh, comes in the person of Moses, Moses is a really fascinating, complex sort of character in Scripture. Uh, Because as the way the book of Exodus describes him, he kind of carries these two sort of identities within himself. 
So on the one hand, uh, Moses is born of the, the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, the people of God. Now, the, the Hebrew people, the Israelites uh, in Moses' day, are, in an, are an oppressed and enslaved people. And if that weren't just like bad enough to be oppressed and enslaved, they find themselves being oppressed and enslaved to the world superpower of the day in Egypt. So think about like what the United States is and the, the current geopolitical landscape that we find ourselves in, right? Like the biggest, the, the baddest, the most wealthiest, the, the powerful, right? Like, and oh, by the way, they have a well-funded, well-trained military, the best that the world has ever seen at this point, right? And it comes to the point where like if Egypt comes and knocks and everybody else runs and hides for fear of their life. So on the one hand, Moses belongs to this group of people, the oppressed and the enslaved to Egypt. But on the other hand, through some strange circumstances around his birth, he finds himself growing up in the household of Pharaoh, the king, the emperor, el presidente, if you will, of Egypt. And so like, he carries like, these, these two uh, identities within, within himself, of being among the, the bottom of society, the marginalized of society, and also bearing within himself like the top 1% of the 1% of the 1%. Now, one day Moses is out for a walk and he sees an Egyptian slave driver beating one of his fellow Hebrew people. And he steps in and he intervenes. And in this intervention, things escalate and he kills this Egyptian slave driver. And he does what most people would do in this situation, tries to cover it up in hopes that nobody saw what happened, right? But the next day he's out for another walk and he sees now two Hebrew slaves fighting with one another and he steps in and intervenes and says, why would you fight with your fellow brother? And the one steps back and says, oh, I don't know Moses. What are you going to do? Kill me like he killed the Egyptian? And as you read the story, you can feel like the, the color like flush from Moses, right? Somebody saw what I did. And if they found out, then who else is going to find out? Turns out that Pharaoh at the very, very top hears about this and Pharaoh does what the, world, what the head of the world superpower does best and that's to seek out and eliminate any sort of threat to his people or his nation. So Moses flees on up out of Egypt and uh, heads out into the desert and he begins to establish his own sort of life out there now. He gets married, uh, he begins working as a shepherd for his father-in-law and is tending to his sheep. Moses sets up a good life and now the next time that we visit Moses is some like 40 years later. Moses is out tending to his father-in-law's sheep. And he's out there and he looks off in the distance and he sees a bush. And this bush is different, like it's on fire. As you would do, you'd be curious and you'd go and check it out. And as he gets closer, he notices that there's something even more peculiar about this bush. This bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. Like it's engulfed in flames, but it's not being burnt up. The, the, the bush looks normal, except for the fact that there's flame all around it, Right? Well, again, as you do, you'd be curious about that. And so as he, he begins to walk closer to it, and as he walks closer to it, he hears the voice of God say, Moses, Moses. Moses says, here I am. And God says, take off your sandals, for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Now, what God says next to Moses here is so incredibly important to this story. But not just this story of God and Moses, but, but Exodus as a whole, and the story of Scripture as a whole, and the story of God revealing God's self to humanity as a whole. Because in the book of Exodus, this is the first time that God reveals God's self 
to a human being. And so what God says here, as God reveals God's self to Moses, these are all of the important things about, uh, Moses, or about God, right? This is like when you introduce yourself to someone, like you may lead with vocation, family, those sorts of things. You're probably not going to lead with that bad hip that acts up when it rains, right? Like you're going to lead with the important <laughs> things, right? And so the next thing that God says to Moses is, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So again, this is incredibly important because this tells us so much about the type of God that we are dealing with. And what we, hear, what we see here is that, first off, a God who hears. A God who hears the cry of God's chosen people. But it's more than just a God who hears, but it's a God who remembers. A God who remembers God's covenant with God's chosen people. And it's more than just a God who hears and a God who remembers, but now it's a God who takes notice of their cry and begins to take action to do something to save, to deliver, to free, to liberate God's chosen people from their oppression and their enslavement. So we have just learned an awful lot about this character, the nature of this God who has just chosen to reveal God's self, to disclose God's self to Moses. Now, if we put ourselves in Moses' shoes, all of this probably sounds good, right? He's like, cool, thanks for telling me all this, God. You know, it's been like 40 years since I've been among them, but they're still my people. Like, thank you. Uh, Feel free to go about your business now and do your thing. And if only God had stopped there, I'm sure Moses' life would have felt very, oh, I don't know, uneventful, right? (laughs) Because the very next thing that we see uh, God doing is turning now to Moses and saying, So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. (laughs) Notice the dynamics that has just happened here. God steps in, God reveals God's self, God does this act of self-disclosure, and God says, like, I'm going to be the one to bring about liberation. I'm going to liberate my people, I'm going to free them so that they can experience life free of this oppression and this enslavement. I will be the great liberator. And then in the very next breath, God turns to Moses and says, oh, by the way, you're actually going to do the liberating. (laughs) There's a very interesting move that we see happening here of God. And it's one that we see not just here, but I think we actually see all throughout scripture. And it's this move of God inviting human beings into the mix. It's, it's, it's a move of God inviting human beings to like join in and do the work of God here on earth. And it's a really interesting move because God is, well, God, right? And it seems as though God could do whatever God wants to do. If God wanted something to happen, God could snap God's fingers and make it happen. And yet we see time and time again throughout scripture, God is like stubbornly bent on this idea of having human beings participate in the work of God. When I was in high school, I got my first car and it was a 1997 Geo Tracker. Anybody remember those? Yeah. Those were awesome. Uh, If you're not familiar with them, they're kind of like the ugly cousin to a Jeep. Uh, Some would say they were ugliest sin. I thought it was the greatest car I could have had. Um, But it was an old car, and uh, it was starting to fall apart a little bit as I got it. And so, like, the biggest thing were the shocks were going out. We lived in the middle of a a cornfield. The roads were terrible. And if I didn't want to get a concussion on my drive to school, like, I needed to get these shocks fixed, right? 
fortunately, my uncle was a mechanic, so I called up my uncle and I said, hey, Uncle Martin, would you mind uh, replacing my shocks for me? He said, sure, bring it over. Head on over, we get it up on the, the lift, and uh, I say, Uncle Martin, you know, I really appreciate this. This is a huge help to us. Thank you so much. He says, that's great. Glad to help. Only problem is, I'm not doing it. You are. <laughs> I start doing the math. Think, I think last week I learned the difference between a screwdriver and a hammer. So now you want me to replace something on a large piece of metal that flies down the highway at high speeds, mind you, I was in high school, which could now endanger myself and others. This feels really, really reckless. So my response to my Uncle Martin was essentially what Moses' response to God is. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses is dealing with, you know, the world superpower and dealing with the most powerful man on earth. And I'm dealing with, you know, shocks. It's essentially the same sort of thing, right? <laughs> Here's why I think this story is so beautiful. And this is why I think the story of scripture as a whole is so beautiful. We're talking about Moses. <laughs> Moses would become the leader of the people of God. Not just like in his, time, in his lifetime, but forever and always. Like up to this point, the, the Jewish people continue to reflect on the role that Moses played in the life of the people of God. And yet we have here the leader of the people of God. And he looks at God and says, I don't know about that. I don't know that I feel adequate enough to do that. I don't know if I feel competent enough to do that. Essentially what Moses says to God is, I'm not enough <laughs> to be able to do that. And again, here in the story, we feel this ache, this sense within us. The sense that we are incompetent, the sense that we are inadequate, the sense that we are not enough to deal with the, the challenges and the tasks that are set before us. Now what God says next, I find so fascinating. Because God looks at Moses and all of this, this aching that, he senses, that God senses within Moses and says, I will be with you. I find this to be such a, a beautiful and comforting and empathetic response of God to acknowledge that like Moses is freaked out <laughs> and yet God uh, seems to suggest that God will, will, will be there with him, like trying to alleviate his fears uh, by the way, this is actually what my Uncle Martin did. He, he certainly wasn't going to trust me to do that by myself and often stepped in and said, no, you're going like, to hurt yourself if you do that. So I was thankful for that. But I think what God is doing with Moses is so much more than just offering a comforting, uh, sort of beautiful, empathetic sort of response. Uh, because what God says here is, I will be. Now we're going to get a little technical here for just a second. Now, the Hebrew word that gets translated into the English, I will be, can also be translated into English, I am. Now, if we follow this story of God, uh, God's self-disclosure to Moses just a little bit further, after Moses continues to kind of banter back and forth with God, uh, he comes to this point of like, who should I say sent me? Like, who are you? I don't even know your name. Who are you? Who should I tell the people sent me? And God says, I am who I am. And then God tells Moses to tell the people that I am sent you. Now there's something fascinating about this Hebrew word that gets translated as I will be or I am, and it is somehow connected with the name that gets ascribed to God of Yahweh. 
Now, this name Yahweh wasn't just like a term for God. It was the name for the God of the people of God. This was the sacred, holy name. It was like honey or babe for a spouse, right? It was the special name of the people of God. And it was such a sacred, revered name that they even refused to say it so as to not desecrate it in some way. Now, people for like literally centuries, even up to this day, have debated like what, what this uh, self-disclosure of I am of God means. Um, some have suggested that it means like being itself, right? Like this experience that we're having of living and breathing and being human beings, right? Like God is holding all of that. Or as Paul would say in the New Testament, in God we live and move and have our being. It's this big sort of picture of who God is holding all things together, And I think that's totally true. But if we step back into the context of the story, I think God is doing something different than offering some sort of epistemological expression of who God is. And I think what God is wanting to offer to Moses in this revelation, this self-disclosure of I am, is pointing to something like God's withness. That as Moses is about to step out and do the work of God, that God does not send Moses to go and do it by himself, but that God steps down and journeys with Moses in this. I think in some way this, this, uh, this act, the story of God's self-disclosure to Moses is an early foreshadowing to what would eventually become the ultimate self-disclosure of God in Jesus, who is, often, or who is referred to as Emmanuel, God with us. A God who doesn't just want us to figure things out on our own, but a God who is willing to step into human form, take on flesh, be among us, be with us, and journey with us. I think in some ways this revelation of God as I am or I will be is an an expression of God's withness with us. So we recognize that all of us have this ache within us, this, this tendency of like, these feelings of inadequacy, these feelings of incompetency. And I think oftentimes when uh, we sense that God is inviting us into something, uh, our response to God can often be, I am not enough. (laughs) And yet I think God's response to us when we say I am not enough is often, I am. (laughs) See, when God invites us into something and we say, I'm too inadequate to do that, I'm too incompetent to do that, I am not enough to do that, I think God often responds, I, I know, <laughs> I did make you, right? I, I know most of these dynamics, right? That doesn't surprise me in any way. But then I think God says, I never wanted you to do it on your own. And while you may not be enough, God says, I am. I think this is the witness of scripture, all of scripture, that God is with us, that God sends us out to do the work of God, but God doesn't send us out to do it alone, but that God is entering into it with us and God is journeying with us in it, partnering with us, empowering us to do it. And I think all of this is most beautifully described by Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus comes to a, group, uh, to a crowd that's been following him. And this isn't just an ordinary crowd of people who feel like this general, like, feeling of inadequacy, this general feeling of incompetency, this general feeling of I am not enough, these would have been the people who had been kicked to the curb throughout society. Like the cards were, st- or the, the, the deck was stacked against them, right? Like every, everything within society told them that they were inadequate, incompetent, that they were not enough. Everything around them reminded them that they were not enough. And Jesus looks at this crowd and says to them, 
Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus uses this imagery of a, a yoke, which would have been some sort of like harness or contraption that would hook onto a, a beast of a field, right? Like an ox. And it would uh, be connected to a cart or a plow. And this, this yoke would allow the beast to pull the cart, pull the plow through the field. But a yoke wasn't just for a single animal. It was often like these, uh, it was often built in a way that two animals could join together. And what farmers would do is that they would take an, a younger, unexperienced ox and they would put it in the yoke, paired alongside an older, more experienced ox, with the hope that as they journeyed together that this older, more experienced ox could show the younger, more experienced ox how to do the work, help carry the burden, help carry the load, and show them how to go about the work of being an ox. <laughs> And so Jesus is now turning to a group of people who feel inadequate, incompetent, feel like they are not enough, and he invites this group to step into the yoke with himself and say, like, you don't have to carry this weight by yourself. It doesn't matter if you feel inadequate, incompetent, not enough. I will be there with you every step of the way carrying the burden. You may be terrified, but this burden can be light because you don't have to carry the weight of being human by yourself. God sends us out to do the work, but God uh, steps in and journeys with us along the way. Lastly, um, there's an old German word that was um, particularly meaningful to the early Anabaptists, uh, and that was the word Gelassenheit. I don't speak German, so, uh, you know, take, take my word on this one. Uh, uh, Gelassenheit can be translated as something of like yieldedness, uh, an openness to the will of God, um, some sort of act of submission. Um, and the early Anabaptists said that this posture of Galassian height was so incredibly essential to like a life of faith, a yieldedness to the spirit, an openness to the will of God, a submission of our life to the life of God. Now, the way that I've often heard yieldedness or openness or submission being described is like yielding my own sort of um, aspirations for my life in exchange for God's aspirations for my life. That there's something that I really want to do, but God wants me to do something else, and so I have to like submit that for God's plans, right? Um, I went to a small Christian liberal arts school, and so we had spiritual emphasis week every year, where some charismatic speaker would load us up on spiritual sugar and then let us figure out our life on our own from there. And oftentimes what happened there was like this act of submission, right? But the submission was often some sort of significant other in our life. And it was like, well, this person stands in the way of me doing God's will. And so I think more breakups were attributed to God during that week alone than the history of humanity ever. <laughs> but I think this is often how we think about like, this posture of yieldedness, this posture of openness, this posture of submission. But what if yieldness and submission wasn't necessarily just about my, submitting my aspirations in exchange for God's aspirations? But what if it was also like submitting my own feelings and fears of inadequacy and incompetency in exchange for this invitation to journey with God? What if the story of God's self-disclosure to Moses is less about like submitting our aspirations for God uh, as it is like laying down our own fears, our own uh, feelings of inadequacy, our own feelings of incompetency, our own I am not enoughs in exchange for God's I am. 
So what might God be inviting you into uh, today? Perhaps it's uh, to join God in the, the work of uh, confronting some of the societal ills in our world around us. And as you think about things like racism and militarism and consumerism, you're like, how in the world am I supposed to do anything about that? Like, I'm not enough to confront that. God says, I know, (laughs) but I am. And I'll journey with you through that so that my kingdom might be revealed in some way on earth as it is in heaven. Perhaps you feel God inviting you into some sort of new pattern, some sort of new habit, some sort of new way of being, or perhaps stepping away from a pattern or habit or way of being, and you think, I... I know that this will bring about healing and wholeness in my life, but I'm, I'm not enough to do that. And God says, I know, but I am, and I'll lead you into that wholeness. Or perhaps uh, maybe you feel God inviting you to like, lay down some of the insecurities and some of the false narratives that you're telling yourself about yourself. And you say, I don't know that I'm enough to step away from all of this. And God says, I know, but I am. And I will journey with you and reveal your own belovedness to you. See, God seems so incredibly stubborn and inefficient in the fact that God invites us into the work of God. But God does not send us out to do the work of God by ourselves. And when we have these moments of feeling like I am not enough, God comes and says, I am enough. And God comes to all of us who are feeling weary and heavy burdened and invites us to join in on the yoke alongside of God so that God can journey with us into this like expression of being human. And that's the good news that I need <laughs> to keep moving forward today. Amen. Let's pray. Loving God, we are uh, grateful that when you chose to reveal yourself to Moses, you said, I am. <laughs> that you are God with us. And all of this being uh, most beautifully revealed in Jesus, Emmanuel. God, thank you that when we uh, feel like we are not enough, you step in and say, I am. God, I pray that we would have a a posture of the Galatian height, a sense of yieldedness, a sense of openness, a sense of submission to all of the fears, all of the aching, all of the insecurities, all of the feelings of inadequacy and incompetency, that we would lay those down and step into the yoke with you. Thank you for journeying with us. Thank you for being God with us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.